the preciousness and the great privilege that's ours this morning is certainly amplified as we notice the benefit of some who have been sick but have made improvements. And furthermore, the opportunity that's ours to sing together, to pray together, to be encouraged together by the Word of God, all of which have made today already a marvelous and lovely day. And now as we more intently look into a portion of the Word of God, might I direct your attention to a lesson I've entitled, The Grace of God. As we made notice somewhat recently in completing our series on the Holy Spirit, at least in the Sunday morning time periods, we came to see so many myriads of ways in which God has showered upon us the great blessings of revelation of His will. Today, as we look, though, at the grace of God, might I make some introductory thoughts and direct your attention in ways similar to that to appreciate in a simple way the magnitude of God's grace to us. So enriching, so amazing, so magnificent, this character it is of God. And at the same time, to contemplate the glorious wonder of His grace, in a way challenges us with our finite mind to appreciate the boundless extent of that grace. In fact, as we consider today some of the thoughts as set forth in the Word of God about God's grace, I would hope that we each would be relatively quickly led to appreciate the distinction that is sometimes seen in what the Bible says about the grace of God versus what men so often are willing to say about it. I suspect that there are relatively few subjects that would rank higher than the grace of God with respect to those matters that are misapplied, misunderstood, and mistaught concerning it. And it is such a tragedy for God's grace should be a highlight thought. It should be a contemplation of enormous power and might, and furthermore, of great comfort. But it certainly is no exaggeration to say that for many who have fallen astray into the terrible thoughts of men as it relates to God's grace, their eternal salvation is in jeopardy. And many who have passed from this life have passed from it with a misperception and thus a disobedience to the marvelous revelation of the grace of God. It is with thoughts like that that on the one hand challenges to its greatness and power and the other hand to the terrible danger of its misapprehension, I would ask you to look with me today at some of the features concerning the grace of God. I would submit that as we begin that study this morning, we do so by first trying to define the very matter of which we speak, the subject of God's grace. I've listed by way of reference some numbers that might be of benefit to us to consider. The word grace, as it appears, is not at all foreign to the Bible. In fact, in the Hebrew scriptures of the Old Testament, that word chen, C-H-E-N is the way we'd spell it in English, but that Hebrew word occurs some 66 times in the Hebrew Old Testament. As we can see, though that may not be a large, large number, it still occurs frequently. But in the New Testament, notice the rather large number of occurrences of the word grace. And that too should be a quick pointing to us of the fact that the New Testament documents, those 27 books from Matthew to Revelation, is the highlight textbook of all concerning the grace of God. Over 370 times in 27 books. In fact, that reference alone highlights to us, doesn't it, that this is an important subject and one that we would do well to at least spend a few moments and seek to understand. That very matter, namely God's grace, 
I would submit to you the word grace itself. In English, when you look at the definition of the word, that Hebrew word and Greek word as well can mean loving kindness. It can mean favor. It can mean goodwill extended toward another. And certainly there are verses and usages of that word that highlight that aspect of it. Consider Luke 2.52 for an example. As this brief description of Jesus is made, it says, And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Significant isn't it that the word grace doesn't appear in that verse. However, the Greek word charis, C-H-A-R-I-S in English, does appear there and it's translated by our translators as the word favor. Jesus increased in wisdom and favor with God and man. There it simply meant the idea of growing with respect to association with other, with respect to association with God. But might we notice, isn't it true that that also is one of the most favorite introductions of the New Testament books? How often did Paul begin his letters by saying, Grace and peace to you through our Lord Jesus Christ, as he did in Romans 1 verse 7, as well as 1 Corinthians 1 verses 1 and 2. Later we notice even the Apostle John employed the same in Revelation 1 verse 4. Grace unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The word grace as it appears in those passages reminds us of the beneficence of God toward those. It was the wish of Paul that they would experience the favor of God and appreciate all the glory and blessings associated with it. To say that though is to say that the preeminent usage of the word grace in the New Testament is identified by the closing statement on that slide. I'd like to read that and I'll allow each of us to ponder a bit of its significance. The word grace has reference to the kindness by which God bestows favor even upon the ill-deserving and grants to sinners the pardon of their offenses and bids them accept of eternal salvation through Christ. Now, that definition I took out of a lexicon from the New Testament. And I'd ask you to notice again some of the words that that writer chose to use in it. And starting from this point, really, in the lesson, we're going to look at some Bible passages that help us appreciate more thoroughly that, that description. But grace is the kindness. Kindness of who? God. The kindness by which God bestows, bestows what? Favor goodwill, the extension of mercy, upon who? Those who do not deserve it. Those who have not merited it. Those who, in fact, are in no position to demand or warrant it. They, in fact, are in no way deserving of this extension of kindness. But what's more? God grants to these, notice these sinners, the pardon of their offenses, their sins those things they have done to transgress His holy and divine will, that in fact have separated them from Him, have cataloged them as those doomed, God has extended to them, though they did not deserve it, the opportunity to have their offenses and sins pardoned, and furthermore to accept of eternal salvation offered through the wonder of His Son. That definition perhaps is somewhat wordy in ways, I suspect all of us have heard of grace identified by other descriptions. Sometimes we hear it referenced as unmerited favor. Notice that word unmerited merely means undeserving. 
It means, in fact, that the individual rece receiving this cannot claim to have earned it, cannot claim to have thus merited or deserved it. Others have defined grace in a simple way like this. It is that means whereby God does not give us what we deserve, and he does give us what we do not deserve. Either of those ways perhaps are good things to keep in mind as we think about the marvelous character of the grace of God, unmerited favor. It is at this point, though, that we would be quick to say that our brief introduction so far to the notion of God's grace has challenged us to notice this is a preeminent topic in the denominational world. Perhaps since the days of John Calvin in the early part of the 16th century, he wrote, remember, as we studied on, on Wednesday evenings about the Restoration history some few months ago, we learned that his works in the middle part of the 1530s set the stage for many of the denominations that would follow. And as they borrowed his ideas and borrowed his statements, there are some who to this day place the bedrock character of their statements really upon what John Calvin asserted. I listed a couple of them for, for your consideration. One of the things about John Calvin's statements concerning grace and faith have to do with the preeminent statement that a person is saved solely by grace. That was Calvin's assertion. In his mind, faith had little, if anything, to do with it. A person was predestined and saved by God's choice and nothing else. So said Calvin. I would ask you to contemplate, in fact, one of the principal tenets or doctrines of his presentation was that of irresistible grace. Namely, that God had a love and a grace for certain. He predestined them to salvation and they cannot resist it. By some means and fashion, God will bring them to salvation, period. On the other hand, those whom he did not predestine are similarly destined to be lost and there's nothing they can do about it. According to Calvin, that was God's perspective and his performance. I would ask you to notice how that has seen itself presented in even some of the more commonly known denominational presentations today. I've quoted from a couple of them. This is the very statement of the manuals of some of our modern day denominations. The way a Christian lives, what he says, his character, his conduct, or his attitude toward other people have nothing whatever to do with salvation. That's taken out of the Baptist manual. It is a direct statement that a person is saved by God's grace, period, and there's nothing he can do to either destroy that or improve it. It is, in fact, the fact that God has selected and chosen him to be saved in his faith by virtue of any action or any lack thereof does not in any whit affect his salvation. To perhaps put it more plainly, the salvation of sinners is wholly of grace. I thought it wise to at least insert those comments because there is such a confusion in the world today about the subject of God's grace. And I would submit to you that has to be one of the greatest tragedies of our modern time. To misapprehend something as wonderful, something as lovely, and something as tremendous as the grace of God. In light of these statements, and I certainly wouldn't want it to be taken that I'm downplaying God's grace. As we're about to see in a moment, it is vital for our salvation. But it does not teach what these manuals say it teaches. 
as we open the Word of God and allow it to teach us about grace. I would ask that you make a journey with me through the remainder of the lesson this morning. We're going to start in Genesis and go forward looking at God's grace and trying to appreciate what is the truth about the presentation of the Bible concerning it and what does that mean for you and I as we strive to serve acceptably under the grace of God today. The very first occurrence in all the Bible of the word grace is found in Genesis chapter 6. I would submit to you that it is one of the highlight occurrences because there is so much to be learned in it. I would ask you to revisit it with me. Genesis chapter 6 brings to our attention the very mention of a man named Noah. The world on that occasion was such that it was overwhelmed in wickedness. Verse 5 of that same chapter denotes that the thoughts of men's heart was only evil continually. As that world was thus living in the nature of sin and rebellion to God. We see the highlight of verse 8 in this words. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Here was the pristine character of a man named Noah. In the midst of a world of sinfulness and iniquity, it is said of Noah that he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. First occurrence in all the Bible of the word grace might I ask you to notice somewhat quickly what that led us to appreciate. To say that Noah received or found grace in the eyes of the Lord, is that to say that God specifically predestined him to be saved and there's nothing that he had to do? Obviously that's not what it means. For not more than three verses later, we notice this just character, this man that was perfect in his generations, this man who found grace in the eyes of the Lord was told, Noah, make thee an ark of gopher wood. Three stories shalt thou make it, within and without shalt thou pitch it. We notice that Noah was thus given instruction whereby he could not only save himself, but those who were of his family. And inasmuch as Noah was a preacher of righteousness, 2 Peter 2 verse 5, the opportunity was extended even to others that they too could comply with the terms of salvation by virtue of God's grace. One of the first things to notice then that this extension of God's grace was such that it meant Noah was given instruction. He was given information whereby he could comply with that instruction and thus save himself and others. It's interesting how different that is from what the modern day presentations of grace are, isn't it? That we're told that you're saved by grace, for instance, and there's nothing that you have to, can do, there's nothing you must do, it's simply all on the part of God. That was not true in Noah's day. For 120 years, this man and others labored in the construction of this vessel, 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet tall. Not only that, as that labor was undertaken and completed, we find that Noah complied with the terms of what God had delivered. God's grace for Noah meant, again, this system of information. This system of instruction was delivered and revealed to him, giving him the opportunity to be saved. The thoughts concerning that aspect of God's grace only ask us to notice again how distinct and different it is from what men so often say about God's grace. I would ask that we look further, not basing all of our thoughts merely on that first occurrence. 
What about other passages that help us appreciate the notion of God's grace? As you can see near the bottom of that screen, let's look at a very general presentation about our state even today and the state of virtually all of mankind throughout history. We notice that God's extension of grace to Noah allowed him to be saved from the terrible flood, that deluge of water that covered the entirety of the surface of earth. What about the thing from which you and I need to be saved? God has always made known to man his system of law. Laws which God expects and demands man to obey and to comply with. There was that early age in which Noah and Adam and others, they were given laws. We notice under the Mosaic regime, they too were subject to the Mosaic institution, the system of the Mosaic economy. Finally today, that law of Christ to which you and I are subject, Galatians 6 verses 1 and 2 tells us. When we notice though, what happens when an individual does not keep that law? When a person violates it and transgresses it? I would submit to you, that's the very thing called sin, isn't it? In 1 John 3 verse number 4, we have the inspired definition of sin. Whosoever sinneth transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. Now, the transgression of God's law. I wonder who, have done, who has done such a thing. Again, let us allow the Scriptures to answer. Who is that person who has been audacious enough and rebellious enough to actually violate God's will? We remember Adam and Eve did it. Who else, though, has? Perhaps Solomon gets us started in 1 Kings 8, 46. He said, There is no man that sinneth not. On the occasion of the dedication of the temple, there even the wise man Solomon so wonderfully declared, God, there is no man that sinneth not. Later, the apostle Paul echoed that refrain in Romans 3, verse 23, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. In Galatians 5, verse 22, Paul, echoing that sentiment yet again, affirmed that all are bound up under sin. You see, none of us can claim exemption from sin. None of us can claim to be holy and noble enough to not be guilty of violating God's will. We have done that perhaps by overtly disobeying something He gave. That is to say, we have committed something He told us not to. But on the other hand, James 4.17 tells us that if we have failed to do something we should do, that too is sin. Again, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We might quickly thus say, so what? What does it mean to violate God's will? Is there a penalty for the violation of God's law? We notice indeed the answer to that is yes. Consider some more passages. These passages, again, are just a sampling of those that could have been selected. In Isaiah 59, beginning in verse 1, even under the Old Testament, there, what position did Israel find itself in when it violated God's will? The text is very familiar, I'm sure, to all of us. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God and have hid his face from you that he will not hear. Their sins thus separated them from God so that his face no longer was directed toward them. 
there was a separation, a distancing, because they were no longer in the keeping of God's will. They had transgressed it. They had violated it. In Romans 3, or rather Romans 6, verse 23, near the closing of that chapter, Paul reaches another highlighted conclusion. He says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul, what are the wages of sin? One word, five letters, death. That word wages we know is the final consummation of, that which is the conclusion of. Notice, wages of sin is death. The writer James, of course, echoed the same, didn't he? In James 1, verses 13 to 15. When there he affirmed, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. We have thus reached a conclusion. One, all are guilty of sin. But sin leads to death. Thus, all are subject to spiritual death, which involves removal, separation from God. Is it any wonder, then, that the great question of Paul in Romans 7.24 is this, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Paul knew that apart from anything else, we are hopeless and lost because we're all sinners, and because of sin, we're separated from God. That means there can be no hope of heaven in that state because that's where God is. And if we're separated from Him, we can't go there. And there's only one other place. It's the devil's hell. You can begin to see the terrible picture and portrait and position that we would be in were it not for something extended to us though we didn't deserve it. And as we've already learned earlier, that's God's grace. In the midst of this darkness and blackness and this great picture of doom that we have now pictured, look at some more passages that lead us to see what God has done. To you and me, people who do not deserve it, who couldn't claim to have merited it, who never for one moment were in a position to deserve the goodness extended, listen to what God has done. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And there we have the contradistinction between perishing on the one hand and everlasting life on the other. This one we deserved. And God gives us the chance to have this one. We were in a position as sinners to be lost. And yet God so loved the world that he gave something or someone. And that one allows us to move from categories of the one to being perished into the one to being those that will receive eternal life. That's just one verse of a few others that certainly could, could also be listed. That was John chapter 3, verse number 16. In 1 Timothy 2, verse number 4, we there read again descriptive of God, who would have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. It isn't thus the will, the desire of God that any person would be lost, would be eternally cast into a distant place from Him. In 2 Peter 3, verse number 9, do we not there, or 2 Peter 3, verse number 9, do we not there see that 
the goodness of God is exhibited by the fact in words like this. As, he, as Peter discusses the day of the Lord, and he discusses this fact, he says, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, for not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Friend, though you may be a sinner, God wants you to be saved. And in fact, He wants you so much to be saved, He did something on your behalf, something you could never have done for yourself, something I could never have done for myself. And in that act, we are beginning to appreciate, I think, the glorious wonder of His grace. That grace again, that undeserving, that unmerited extension of His mercy upon our behalf that allows salvation to become possible. That, of course, emanated in the very giving of His Son. Does it not again say, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son? Jesus, of course, was born in Bethlehem to the Virgin Mary. He entered into this world, and from the very moment there at the outset in Matthew 1, verses 21 to 23, we read, Call Him Jesus, for He shall save His people from what? Not from Rome, not from the Egyptian government. He'll save them from their sins. You see, that's the thing from which we most need to be saved. Salvation from sin. We notice that this goodness thus of God's grace is defined and even seen in that text of 2 Corinthians 8, verse number 9. Listen to what Jesus did. Speaking about the activity of his life and the way it, that it relates to the grace of God, Paul wrote, For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be made rich. Jesus, you see, while in heaven, the Son in heaven, had all things at his disposal. Paul writes in Philippians 2, he was on a level playing field with God, and yet he gave that up, took upon himself the form of a servant, of a man no less, and not only a man, he allowed them to put him to death on a cross. That's grace, isn't it? Because that sinless, perfect life allowed Him to be the atoning sacrifice for my sins and yours. And as such, the shedding of His blood by virtue of the promise and power of God can thus allow you and me to be saved. Oh, the wonder of God's grace. No wonder sometimes in the book we sing marvelous grace, infinite grace that allowed God in love to send His Son to die for a people undeserving of that blood, undeserving of the torture and agony that he, in fact, experienced. That greatness of the love of God now leads us to see in so many ways how different this kind of grace and its description is from what men say. Remember earlier we said that there are those who teach that a person is simply saved by virtue of God's extension of grace with nothing else? Let's now ask, we've learned that God's grace is exemplified in the giving of Jesus. How does one receive that grace? That's an important question, isn't it? For that grace, as long as it's extended, but I do not receive it, of what benefit is it to me? Eternally, personally, and directly. Thankfully, the Bible also answers these questions. The first thing to be noted that grace makes available the opportunity to be saved for all people. It's not just a selected few. Didn't Paul say in Titus 2.11, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared unto all men, 
Who, Paul? Not just the Jews, not just the Gentiles, not just certain nationalities or ethnicities. It's a, it has appeared to all men. That's a great statement of comfort, isn't it? All of us thus have the opportunity to receive it. But now the question again, the specifics of that reception, I think are easily seen in the following words. The Bible teaches that God's grace must be received. It's not that it's poured out upon a person with that person having no interest in receiving it, doing nothing to obtain it. After all, the pouring out of that grace. Notice texts such as 2 Corinthians 6, verse number 1. Paul besought the Corinthians to receive not the grace of God in vain. It's clear that if Paul made that plea of them, it's possible to attempt to receive it in some way other than what's appropriate. He pleaded with them, urged them, receive not the grace of God in vain. But that's only perhaps to be meted with the text of Galatians 2.21. There, speaking about the old law of Moses and its comparison to the gospel, Paul there interestingly wrote, I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. There were those of the Galatian area who Paul very pointedly had to tell them, I do not frustrate God's grace. It thus is possible in some way to frustrate, or that is to say, to not receive the full benefit of God's grace. If it's true that God's grace thus leads to salvation, I'd submit to you that that's an eternally de desperate and damnable thing. If God has extended it, but you and I do, we frustrate its reception or receive it in vain, that's a tragic thing for you and me. The reception of God's grace is highlighted in that text that was read in our lesson text this morning. Brother Colonel read from it in Ephesians 2, verse 8. Could I ask you to notice again the language of Ephesians 2, beginning in verse number 8. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. What a lovely passage. Let's again notice the statement, you're saved. Saved how, Paul? By grace. Had God never extended the opportunity to be saved, none of us could have been because we're sinners. And as such, we're separated from God. But Paul didn't end the sentence there. You're saved by grace through faith. There is a necessary accompaniment of faith that responds in willful obedience to that instruction which God has delivered by grace. And that's the same way it worked in Noah's day, wasn't it? When Noah found grace in the eyes of God, that meant that God delivered to him instruction that would allow him to be saved. In a similar fashion, God's grace today, through the character of his Son, extends to us instruction that allows us, upon complying with it, to be saved. What if Noah had never built the ark? He knew what to do, but suppose he had never built it. Would he have been saved? I have not the slightest doubt he wouldn't have been. For at that point he would have been a rank sinner in violation of God's will and commandment, for he would not have done what God said for him to do. Today, God's grace has extended to us instruction 
whereby we, upon complying therewith, can be eternally saved. Let's look at some more verses that highlight again the nature of where that grace is found. We've already seen by grace through faith, Ephesians 2 8. But notice if, with me, if you would, in Romans 5, verse 2. Beginning in the first verse of Romans 5, we read, Therefore we are justified by faith. Thus, justification by faith is so clearly taught, but the sentence goes onward. Therefore we are justified by faith. Then he says, Wherein we have access by grace into this faith. Notice, it's the grace of God that even allows us the possibility of entering into a state of faith in which we stand justified before God. How much plainer could that text have been? We enter by character of the opportunity of God's grace through the avenue of faith, and therein we stand justified before God. From Hebrews 11, we learn what faith is. It's the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And when we thus do that which God has commanded, we, like Noah, respond to the instruction he has given and we are able to be put in position to be recipients of the great blessings of eternal life. God's grace is clearly and exclusively found in Christ. That perhaps is the final thought for our lesson as it makes distinction to what we read earlier this morning. So much of the denominational world seems to think God's grace is found anywhere you want to find it. The New Testament doesn't teach that. In 2 Timothy 2, verse 1, Paul wrote, The grace of God that is in Christ Jesus. Clearly, it is found in Christ and nowhere else. Notice also, in Romans 3, verse 24, as Paul was beginning, if you please, the Roman letter, he asserted yet again, Christ is a propitiation for our sins, and God's grace is found in Christ Jesus. When you and I thus see that that instruction that God has given for our salvation revolves around Christ Jesus and it's found in Him, you and I thus must respond in faith by doing simply that system of instruction He has given. And in so doing, we'll be the recipients of God's grace and will not have received it in vain. A closing text might well be Galatians 3, verses 26 and 27. Because we may come full circle and ask, how does one thus come to be in Christ? Can I pray myself in Christ? Is it possible for me to have another person pray for me to enter into Christ? What about the profession of some experience that I have had, maybe a dream or some other thing that God has maybe used? Is that enough to warrant my statement of being in Christ? Not from the New Testament perspective. There, notice again what Paul wrote about being in Christ. He said, You're all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus, for as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Thus, when one obeys the gospel plan of salvation, culminating in the act of baptism, that person is now in Christ, and as such is a full recipient of all the promised blessings of God's grace. What a beautiful story. And what a compellingly touching story as well. As we have seen this morning in our study about the objective truth of God's grace, 
The whole story is not left for you and me to think about what we each individually might prefer to be the case. What's important is what does the Bible say about it. And this is what the Bible says about God's grace. It is, in fact, the extension of that marvelous means to those undeserving. We've seen, for us, it means salvation from sin. We didn't live good enough and could not live good enough to merit Christ's blood, but yet God sent him anyway. And when we thus comply with that system of instruction found in him, we are the recipients of God's grace. By grace are you saved through faith. Have you in faith responded thus to God's grace today? God has done his part. Heaven has done its part. He has sent the Son and extended the grace. Have you received it in faith? If you have not today, you need to. You don't need to leave the confines of this building in a state of being lost, unjustified before God. God's grace is in fact stated in words that we have studied today. By grace are you saved through faith. Believe Jesus to be the Son of God. Repent of your sins. Confess Him as the only begotten Son of God and be baptized. At that point, having entered Christ, you're again the marvelous recipient of the blessings of His grace. If you have done that, though, but you have lost sight of the blessings of that grace, come back to your first love. The second law of pardon is extended to you, 1 John 1, verse 7. As we close our lesson, let us not then forget what grace involves. The deliverance of a system of instruction upon compliance with that that allows one to be saved. Friend, grace is not what the world so often tells us it is, but this is what the Bible says that it is. If you've not responded thus to that kind of grace today, or if your thoughts concerning it have been improper, let's study the Word and let God tell us about His grace. And if we can be of assistance to you in your response to the gospel today, would you not let that be known with haste while together we stand and while we sing?